0: it can be hard to make decisions at the best of times, let alone in times of crisis. Higher education leaders and policy makers in Australia are facing a lot of hard decisions right now. There's the triple R threat of reallocation, retraction and restructures. These are common phrases in our daily papers when examining the future of the tertiary sector. And there's a lot of talk too about recovery. But what if we thought about a different R word? Reconstruction. Welcome to The New Social Contract. I'm your host, Tamsin Peach. As much as this is a moment in which our societies are facing significant challenges, there's also an enormous capacity to rethink the basis on which we run universities and the potential to imagine a new system. Higher education is not a ship without a rudder. There are people at the helm, and they have different ideas about the purpose of the university sector. And today we'll be hearing from two of them. I'll be sitting down with Professor Attila Brungs, the Vice-Chancellor of my home institution, the University of Technology Sydney, to discuss what universities want and need from government at the moment and what a new social contract between universities and their publics might look like.
1: My biggest concern in the next little while is if you focus too much on costs, you can take yourself down a path that returns universities to a very elite, small amount of education. I'll be quite blunt. The rich upper echelons of society get a great university education. Everyone else gets a poor education and there's very much a schism in our society. Not only do you not need that from an equity point of view, not only do you not need that from an Australian cultural point of view, that destroys economic value. In this post-COVID world, we need all of our credible people resources working for our country's prosperity and our national well-being.
0: And we'll also cross to Parliament House in Canberra to speak with the Honourable Tanya Plibersek, the Shadow Minister for Education and Training, to get her take on Australian universities.
2: Maybe crisis delivers some innovation, but if all you're doing is struggling to catch your next breath before the sort of roiling crisis of having to find voluntary redundancies in your organisation takes over again, it's pretty hard to innovate effectively. So and the first thing you need is leadership from government to say that this is important to us. We need post-secondary school education working in a less siloed way, in a way that really brings out the best in both sectors, that really is explicit about the fact that vocational education and universities are not in competition, but they are complementary institutions, and that many Australians throughout their lives will have elements of their education delivered
1: in either setting.
0: Attila, thank you for joining us. I imagine being a Vice-Chancellor is one of the more challenging jobs in Australia at the moment.
1: It's a challenging job, but before I go into the challenges, can I say right at the outset, it is still one of the greatest privileges anybody can possibly have. I feel the honour on a day-to-day basis We have thousands of years' history of universities, and our aim is how can we help society through challenges? How can we help society become better places? How can we hold mirrors up to society? How can we do the research that helps people get out of bed in the morning, cures their cancer, helps their kids get educated? So it is absolutely challenging, but I couldn't start off by saying how keenly I feel and still feel the honour, and how proud I am to be part of a community like UTS. In week one, we had 50 academics across the university volunteer their time to work with government and community groups to tackle the COVID challenges. I've got hundreds of academics at the moment working on programs to try and help our economy recover, to try and create jobs for those who don't have them. So that gets to the heart of what a university is. A university is a public institution. We exist solely for public good. And that's what makes my job, even in these times of challenge, so much more rewarding in that there is something worth fighting for. And then every time you succeed, it doesn't just help your institution, it helps our country.
0: You've been very vocal in talking about UTS as a public university. So what does that public mission
1: mean? The university is a public institution that exists for social good, okay? Regardless of where it gets its funding from, we are enacted under a separate act of parliament, New South Wales Parliament. We have some very clear goals, that we need to help educate society, we need to provide research that further society, and we have to provide debate, critique, um, provide rigorous evidence that society can have the important discussion society needs to have going forward. So that's what a public institution is. Now what it means is that everything we do has the long-term best interests of Australia at heart. Sometimes it means we're counter-cyclical. So sometimes it means that we are saying things that parts of society, maybe even our policymakers, don't necessarily agree with because Again, and it is unfortunate, many times policymakers are driven into short-term electoral cycles. Whereas in university, you can say, hang on, that's fine for the next three months, but what about the next five years, 10 years, where are we going? Now, the challenges at a university is that it's embedded in our DNA, as it were. We educate people. People go out and make society a better place. So often I give my speech every time a graduation. People say, "You know, the biggest impact universities have got out there, research, curing cancer, blah blah blah." I look around the wonderful faces in the graduation hall and say, "No, no, it's you. You're going to go out and solve today's challenges. You're going to go out and design how to make things better for your fellow humans." So one of the things we do is at but most responsibility is, as a university is how do we construct education in such a way that we can support people going out to do that, to set up the frameworks, to get them to think creatively, to get them to think the big picture, to get them to think about sustainability, to get them to think in the long term. Then our research, pretty much everything in a society is based on that research. If you look at the higher level, it's easier to say, but much harder to do. So something that we've done at UTS is we've come up with what we call our social impact framework. So we try and measure what social benefit we have right across the university and hold everything to account against that. Because even in the good times, and these are far from the good times, shall I save for university finances, you can't do everything. So you have to make a choice. Do I do this education or do I do that? Do I work with this community group or do I just support that government policy? To make those choices, you need a framework that comes back to, at its essence, measuring how much broad social impact you can have.
0: So how does keeping the long view at the forefront of your mission intersect with the need to run a business, which is also what universities are? They've got balance sheets, they run on year-to-year accounting
1: cycles. Who pays for all of this? It's paid for in a variety of ways. So UTS is roughly a $1.1 billion organisation. So the joy I have is I've got to run a $1.1 billion organisation, I don't have to do things that if I was running an investment bank, for example, where I'm held to quarterly accounts of earning more money for my shareholders. No, I just have to make sure that I use that $1.1 billion in the best way possible for society. So therefore our KPIs are much more broader. Our stakeholders are broader. I'll use the word of one of my council members once who said, the challenges a university has is rather than a normal business who has its shareholders and board as a key stakeholder, which is very important for clear commercial arrangements, a university's stakeholders are society, our students the government, our staff. Therefore, we have a much broader set of stakeholders. So what you need to do is you need to work with those stakeholders. You need to run an organization that is efficient and effective, but effective at what? I can be as efficient as I bloody will like, but if I'm not efficient in the right areas, what's the point? So therefore we've taken a lot of time at UTS and our new strategies around that to say, what do we want to achieve? And then let's make sure we use everything, including our finances and run our finances as tightly as possible to get to that outcome. And that outcome is a certain set of key societal objectives, which we measure and manage in a very concrete way. So what are those societal objectives that UTS has set? The first is moving towards a lifetime of learning. That is a big shift in society. And in fact, the post-COVID world will be quite different. But some of the trends that we identified pre-COVID are actually going to happen faster and harder and happen simultaneously. So things like the need for lifetime of learning. So people need to learn a lot more all the way through their lives. They need to be training, retrain. But I think COVID has brought them on faster because we've got a whole lot of people without jobs. How do we help them get the skills they need for the new jobs? Automation will be coming faster as businesses who are under financial pressure try and cut costs. So therefore, how do we reskill people to get new jobs? So this lifetime of learning universities crudely were set up to take wonderful kids from school, give them a great experience for two or three years, and then wish them luck for the rest of their careers. That's completely shifted. What I want UTS, and I see the whole sector going towards, is how do we support people all the way through their post-secondary education? So someone coming from school is just as much a part of the UTS community as someone who's been out four years, someone who's changing careers 10 years down the track, someone who wants to do something else at the age of 65. All of those are now in the purview of how we need to support society. It sounds small, That is a huge, huge shift. I can't tell you. The whole approach of a university needs to shift to tackle it, but that's what society needs now. We have a strategy called UTS 2027. We we figured we had a few years to get there. I think COVID's brought it on a lot faster. So we need to get to that model much quicker than we had in past, that's one. The second one, this is more linked to UTS, is around innovation. And this is particularly for Australia. How are we gonna drive jobs growth? Often you think as a vice chancellor, I feel the need to make sure that we graduate 10,000 wonderful people a year to make sure that they' got all the skills they need to do whatever they go to. I also keenly feel that we need to create 10,000 new jobs for people to go to, at least if not more, okay? So that's why a lot of our strategies shift on how do we help create those jobs. We've got you know UTS student startups, we've created 318 startups in the last twelve months. That'll be helpful. But we're working with the New South Wales government. How can we make that 1,000 a year for the next three years? And each of those companies will employ between five to 10 people. That's what we need to change. How do I help those wonderful people graduating every year have the innovation and entrepreneurial skills to create more jobs? So there's a real shift for UTS because I'm thinking about the economy 5, 10, 15, 20 years out. We need to drive jobs growth in very different ways than we've driven it before and where universities often only focus on providing the skills for those jobs, I think it's now incumbent upon us to try and help create that whole ecosystem to drive jobs. The third one is all around how do we engage in what I call a broader social justice mission, using the expertise of the universities. To be harsh on, on me and our universities in the past, sometimes we had this great research, came up with wonderful theories We wrote a paper about them. We maybe flicked them to the government and hoped the government would do something about them. And then sat back feeling warm and fuzzy that we've helped society. That time is long past. We have to use our knowledge, our existing knowledge, to actually engage with society for two reasons. One, because we have a lot of knowledge that can help society through the challenges it's facing. But two, to listen to society in ways we've never listened to before. Because unless we listen and engage in a very different way than we've done in the past, We'll be providing solutions to problems no one really cares about. And that is a complete waste of time, money and resources at a period of history when you cannot afford to do that. And I think there's a complete shift, particularly in the post-COVID world, on how do we engage with society in different ways to solve the problems that they need now.
0: These are all enormous changes to the traditional way universities have understood themselves as kind of creating knowledge and delivering education. And then, as you said, sending people out into the world. There's a kind of separation between knowledge generation and society, and the way you've been talking about universities blurs that boundary. I mean, is there a new social contract that is being written for the 21st century between universities, the state and the public?
1: I'd like to say it's a social contract that merely changes the contract that universities have had with society For a long period. So in various parts of history, universities have engaged with societies in different ways for societal needs at that time. I suppose what I'm arguing, and particularly I think in a post-COVID world, those needs are radically different. Therefore, we have to have radically different models of how we engage. So it could be a new social contract, or it could be this age's social contract that the universities have. What doesn't change is that we're public institutions. What doesn't change is that we exist for social good. At one point universities became quite isolated places, and it was fine if you went to university, worked at a university, or benefited directly from research at university. That's not good enough anymore. Okay? It has to be far more out there in the communities at whole. I mean one of the things that I see with education changing, and universities need to navigate our role in this, is I see a blurring with this lifetime of learning between where people get their education. Very soon, people may or may not start with university, may start with a the TAFE, then get some education from a workplace, then get some private provider, then come back and do a micro-credential or a master's at university. But they'll go through all of those throughout their learning journey. And all of them are complementary. The problem is there's often been a hierarchy of education. That needs to be blown up. And people have to understand there's different types of education that will suit people at different points in their life. Do you know that Australia is the only OECD country where uh, the businesses is putting less into developing their staff than anyone else and going backwards? I'm not sure that helps our economy where we need to go, particularly at this point in time.
0: And what about the settings that encourage those businesses to, say, take responsibility for continuing to train their staff throughout a lifetime of development? What are we getting wrong there? Or maybe to put the question a different way, What is your vision of what the policy settings should be coming from government around framing what those societal goals are?
1: So I think there's three things that will influence them. First is the government settings. And I think the government does need to think through incentives for businesses around how do they build more development training. The second one, to tell you the truth, is just market forces. Those who start doing this well will flourish. Those who don't are going to go out of business. There is certain brutality in market forces that I think the post-COVID world will really bring a sharp and pointy stick at. And then there's the third one. I think there is actually becoming a new social contract between enterprise and society. Think about it through the early part of this century. There was a lot more understanding that government will provide this. Government will provide this and businesses are just about to make money. If they make as much money as possible, that's good because it kind of trickles to everyone. I think a lot of businesses you're already seeing is they realize that their role in society is much broader than that. They've got to engage with the sustainability agenda. They've got to engage with being a positive contributor to society more than just making money and making employment.
0: If you're taking a long-time horizon, that is a mechanism for change. But arguably, we don't have a long-time horizon when it comes to questions of sustainability and the climate challenge. The events over the summer brought home just how urgent some of these questions are. I mean, if COVID hadn't erupted, we might be sitting here talking about the consequences of the bushfires – So what does thinking about climate do to the university's mission?
1: The university tackles sustainability in three ways. So the first is, most importantly, how do we embed questions, a questioning, a curiosity, an understanding of sustainability and its importance in our education? One of the core parts of the university is you're teaching people how to think, how to critique, how to look beyond a Twitter feed. If you get that right, You'll produce people who really can question, who can really critique, who understand what's going on. And more importantly, and this is through all of our education, understand the importance of taking responsibility and accountability for their actions. And that's, I think, I know you may say that takes a long time, but believe me, I have seen people graduate within one year, two years, they've gone out and made a huge difference. So I am more optimistic than you that if you've got 10,000 people who got the questioning, bright minds, know how to critique, know how to find evidence, know how to make change, that'll happen faster than you think. The second one is around research. We do a lot of research around sustainability. So how do we give society the solutions it needs? And how do we help society understand that many of the solutions that they need are here now? There are so many techniques that we can use that can help our sustainable world that don't require 10 more years of research. They exist now. It's just behavioral changes. So there's a big part of our mission is how do we make sure people understand the research, the tools. so UTS have been driving that as hard as we can. The third part is then as a university, we have to lead. Okay, So we have to make some tough decisions. Say, for example, a few years ago, it could be very easy for us to buy more green energy. Great. I'd have felt good about it. The students would have felt good about it. We'd have got green energy, which would help the environment. What we did instead was one of our academics in IFF spent a year going through the relatively Byzantine practices of buying and selling electricity in the market to find out a way that we could buy power from one particular provider. The reason why that was important is then we could invest in a solar farm in Singleton, in the Hunter Valley. That solar farm, we could give them a pre-contract. They could take that contract to the bank. The bank would give them a loan. And now they've built a solar farm and we bought electricity directly. So that is a systems change. Now there's a number of universities and a number of businesses who are doing that. So we have created a whole industry around very economically viable solar farms.
0: And I suppose it means you're thinking about the university as an entrepreneur in itself in a way. But I did want to ask you what you think the likely changes will be to the way the sector is organised. And I guess there's many potential scenarios that might play out. There's talk of mergers, there's talk of smaller institutions. I mean, if we're having this conversation in 10 years' time, what do you think the higher education sector in Australia will look like?
1: The most important question you should always ask yourself is why, to start off with. And so many of the conversations I've seen around this, there's not been any why. There have been answers before people have asked, why would the hell would you do that? Okay, and that disappoints me. What's our new social contract? How do we deliver that more effectively? So let's have those conversations first before we go anywhere near, oh, we need mergers. I mean, every article I've written that I've gone, why? But I've seen so many mergers destroy (laughs) more value than you can possibly stick at, especially when people don't know why. So if I can answer your a question in a different way, the whys that I want are, one, we need to have an education that we do very well in Australia, we've done even better in the last few years of the demand-driven system, which is make sure we've got equitable access to our entire population for those who need and deserve university education or TAFE or VET education. That, for me, is the fundamental why. If we don't get that right, it doesn't matter what structure we are, we've stuffed our country. Okay, we're not a big enough country that we can waste resources. We're an incredibly rich country in our people assets. And if we can make sure that there's equitable access from all segments of society, that's number one. Two, this new social contract you said. How can the wind use whatever shape, whatever business model we have to make sure we're delivering what society needs, not what we think society needs? So in that case, If there's bigger or smaller institutions, fine, as long as they've got that why in the case, okay? My biggest concern in the next little while is if you focus too much on costs, you can take yourself down a path that returns universities to a very elite, small amount of education. A lot of the commentary I've seen in the media at the moment would take Australia to a place where, I'll be quite blunt, the rich upper echelons of society get a great university education, everyone else gets a poor education, and there's very much a a schism in our society. Not only do you not need that from an an equity point of view, not only do you not need that from an Australian cultural point of view, that destroys economic value. In this post-COVID world, we need all of our resources, our incredible people resources, working for our country's prosperity and our national well-being.
0: So what should publics, publics being industry, but also the students you've been talking about, what should they be demanding of universities on the one hand, but also governments on the other, who are going to be setting these policy objectives?
1: one of the big things that I think all of them should be really aware of is how do we create a system that will support them getting their educational needs throughout their whole lives? We do not have enough educational capacity in Australia, either through universities, vet, private providers, or business. Say my daughter who's 14 and I just know how much education she's going to need through her life. At the moment, it's not there. So what people should be demanding is how do we increase, I'm not saying more in universities or more in vet, but how do we create a system such that people can have that ability to educate, retrain, reskill, upskill throughout their life so they can make the best for themselves, but also are incredibly value contributed for society. That's what we really need.
0: I mean, there's really only three kinds of sources of funding for that. There's individuals, there's governments, and there's industry. So what's the funding mix that we should be looking towards? What responsibilities do individuals have to pay for that lifetime of retraining? What responsibilities should employers have? And where does the government come in?
1: Unfortunately, I'm going to be a very bad answering on an interview that my answer is yes to all of those. So yes, it is. But I think the yes changes depending on who you are, what's perhaps what stage of your life. I can see more government contribution, like, like schools, you know, it should be essentially free, okay? But if you're three quarters away through your career, Reskilling, I think you should bear more of the burden. If you're an employer and you're about to do a huge workforce change, it's going to make lots of money for shareholders. The employer should bear more of the cost. So for me, it's not as simple as which one of those three, because it changes as you go through your lifetime of learning journey. And I think we need to get a system that's sophisticated enough to recognise that.
0: Attila, what's your vision for the future of higher education in the 21st century?
1: I am a great optimist. One of the things that I have seen in this COVID period is all of our universities Uh, and many of our public institutions respond in a way that you really would have hoped that they did, okay? It's nice to say this in good times, but they have responded in a way to make sure that they look after society. I mean, I've got millions of dollars of financial challenges and we provide a thousand meals a week for kids who can't eat. And we provide research to drive new jobs that we're doing now and we're investing more money into it. So what I would like to see is that ethos continue that creates this new, call it your new social contract, where our public institutions are fit for purpose to help our society prosper in the long term.
0: If Vice-Chancellors like Attila are responsible for steering institutions, it is ultimately our politicians who determine the settings and the direction in which the university ship sails. Over the course of this podcast, we've talked several times about the shape those settings are taking under the Federal Coalition Government. And that's why I wanted to speak with Tanya Plibersek. Tanya is an alumna of UTS and she's also the Shadow Minister for Education and Training. Tanya has served as Deputy Leader of the Labor Party, and she's been a Member of Parliament for Sydney for the past 22 years. We spoke on Tuesday the 16th of June, just a few days before Minister Tian announced his plans to redistribute the cost of degree programs, and it was a sitting week in Canberra. Division required. Ring the bells for four minutes.
2: Hi, how are you, Tamsin?
0: Thank you so much for doing this in the middle of an obviously busy sitting week.
2: Oh, no, that's okay. The bells you can hear right now are bells for a Senate division, which is fine. I'm happy to just plough on through this. But if we have a House of Representatives division, we might have to take a little break while I go to the chamber and vote, okay?
0: Sure, no trouble. Let's plunge straight in then. As we know, the higher education sector is in trouble. You've described the government's rescue package for universities as a fraud, and you've condemned the exclusion of university staff from the JobKeeper scheme. Given the dire financial situation facing Australian universities and the number of jobs that are on the line, what assistance would a Labor government be offering to the sector?
2: Well, as you say, I've been very concerned about the estimated 21,000 jobs in the university sector that are at risk right now. And the one thing Dan Tehan could do is sit down with universities and work out how to keep those people working. They're people that we will need in the university sector in coming months. I think the real problem with the government's approach is that they keep changing the goalposts to ensure that universities receive no assistance. And that's just not fair. Initially, they said universities would be treated as charities. They changed their minds within 48 hours and said, no, no, um, universities will be treated as businesses. But when it became apparent some universities would qualify for JobKeeper payments if you treated them like any other business, the government changed the goalposts again to specifically exclude public universities. They actually made one more change that said public universities would be excluded, but private universities would be eligible for JobKeeper. It's just not fair. Universities are really critical to us at this time for educating and training the next generation of professionals but also for the research that we've been calling on universities to do during the covid-19 crisis research into a vaccine treatment cure for the disease but also thinking about the sort of jobs and economic boosts we'll need to address the economic crisis that we're facing
0: one of the things that minister tian has said about universities and he's said it to the australian newspaper recently is that universities need to change their business model to focus more on domestic students and online education and and a much greater alignment with industry. What do you think of that pivot?
2: Well, I think a lot of universities are saying it's going to cost them money to provide these short courses and it's not clear that short courses will translate into uh, qualifications that are valued by employers. So I'm not sure that the 20,000 short courses are quite the panacea that the minister has claimed that they are, I think it's a bit rich for the minister, the government, to say we should be focusing more on domestic students when it's this government that has actually capped the number of domestic students in our universities. And there's no question that demand for student places will increase as unemployment increases. There'll be a lot of people who think, well, I can either be searching for work, or I can be getting an education that gives me a better chance of getting a better job. If the government's not prepared to increase the places available to domestic students, then any talk of a pivot to greater concentration of domestic students is just window dressing, isn't it?
0: So as these potential students, people who've been put out of work by the economic aspects of COVID-19, as they look to universities and potentially don't find a place in them, What should they be demanding of government?
2: I think what universities and potential university students need to be demanding of government is an approach that says if you're prepared to work hard, if you're prepared to study hard, if you've got the capacity, there'll be a place for you and that place will help you get a better job in the long run. I think what our society should be demanding of universities is that universities give as many people an opportunity to get a great education as possible. That that education doesn't depend on where you live or who you are, it depends on your willingness and your capacity to work hard. So we know that universities are responsible for discovery, innovation. The research agenda of universities has been a huge driver of our economy. And I think at this time in particular, where we see research funding hitting absolutely rock bottom levels, that's another area where the compact between the government, universities and our society needs re-evaluation.
0: What might your plans look like that integrate not only VET and higher ed, but higher education generally with manufacturing, with the service sector? What does that kind of systems thinking look like? And where can we begin to have that conversation?
2: Well, I think it's very difficult to have that conversation when institutions are fighting for their survival.
0: The truth is maybe
2: crisis delivers some innovation, but if all you're doing is struggling to catch your next breath before the sort of roiling crisis of having to find voluntary redundancies in your organisation takes over again, it's pretty hard to innovate effectively. So the first thing you need is leadership from government to say that this is important to us. Uh, that we need post-secondary school education uh, working in a less siloed way, in a way that really brings out the best in both sectors, that really is explicit about the fact that vocational education and universities are not in competition, but they are complementary institutions and that many Australians throughout their lives will have elements of their education delivered in either setting. And then you need to look at how businesses are interacting with universities, for example. You need to look at the settings of research and development tax concessions to see whether the settings, as they are, really deliver innovation and genuine addition to the body of knowledge that we have. Yeah, I, I think it's a, actually a very exciting opportunity to work on.
0: I mean, I think so, but it's really great to hear that from our Shadow Minister for Education It seems to me that it's a moment right now when our societies are facing massive challenges, but there's also an enormous capacity to rethink the basis on which they've been structured. And as you say, the social settings that frame them too. Diversity and equity has been a big focus of yours. What does that mean in terms of the funding arrangements for universities?
2: Look, we have relied in recent years on international student revenue to do a whole lot of research, but also to cross-subsidise the education of Australian students. If the minister is serious about what he says about refocusing again on domestic students, there needs to be funding of extra places for Australian students that goes with that. We need to make a decision whether we as a community, as a society, as an economy actually value the research that's been going on in universities. If we actually value the research, then we have to fund it. Again, we can't continue to cross-subsidise it and then criticise universities for an over-reliance on international students. The Labour Party's policy has always been that you shouldn't miss out on a place in university because you can't afford it or because you come from a particular suburb or regional town or country area, you shouldn't miss out on university because you think you don't belong there. We have to democratise our universities and make sure that every Australian feels that they've got a right to a university education if they're prepared to work hard and study hard. Unless you actually have money set aside to deliberately contact and open the world of opportunities to students who might be the first in their family to go to university, it doesn't happen by accident. It it happens by design. So, we absolutely need to address the cap on student numbers. We can't address that, incidentally, by making existing students pay more, which I, I always worry that the government has in its back pocket as a solution you know will increase student numbers as long as existing students are prepared to subsidize new students but we also have to take deliberate action to reach out to people communities localities that are underrepresented in our higher education institutions we've got some suburbs, you know, some towns where you're five times less likely to go to university, you know, there's a five-fold difference between the, mm-hmm. the most advantaged suburbs, university attendance, and the least advantaged uh, university attendance. It's not because, you know, these people are five times smarter. It's about opportunity and it's simply not right to have a taxpayer-funded system where such inequities exist.
0: Some vice chancellors might say it's only partly a taxpayer-funded system. I mean, there's only really three pots of money. There's government, there's individuals, and there's maybe industry and business. Where should the money be coming from in enabling those equity pathways? I
2: think it's a really good investment. From taxpayers, because it's not just about the individual benefit for students. We know that there is a graduate premium. It's not as high as it once was, but you're still talking about an average twelve or fourteen thousand dollar difference. Uh, I still support students paying a contribution to their education, but there is a benefit to our society and our economy of having a highly educated, highly skilled workforce. We know that the jobs that are being created coming years, you'll need either a TAFE qualification or a university qualification for nine out of ten of those jobs. Unskilled jobs that require no post-secondary school education are rare and they are, by and large these days, insecure and low-paid. So if we want to give people the ability to support themselves decently, you know, giving them the opportunity of an education is important. That means that we're holding back our economic recovery if we don't have the skilled people to do the work as it becomes available. So it's not just an investment in the individual. It's an investment that all of us benefit from. And that's aside from the public benefit of the intellectual endeavour and research output of Australian universities. And it's just incidentally, it's aside Also, from the practical day-to-day economies that universities are part of, if you look at what's happened at the moment as international students haven't been able to return to Sydney, I mean, we're talking about the suburbs around UTS, look how empty the restaurants are. Look at what's happening to, you know, rental properties in the area. It is catastrophic if we continue down the path where we're missing thousands of students. The long-term economic impact of that is obvious to our national prosperity, but even the short-term economic impact of that is really substantial. And that is bad enough in a central Sydney CBD where you've got other people who are using those services, but you take a university campus out of a regional town, it has a big impact.
0: So what then does it mean to be a public university in the 21st century?
2: I think it probably means much the same as it did a thousand years ago in Morocco, where the first university was, or Bologna, where the first European university was. It's a nourishing of the individual and a nourishing of our society. That's the responsibility of universities, if you strip it all away. It's giving every person the opportunity of developing their mind, their spirit, their understanding of the world, their passions. But it's also giving us, as a society, a way of developing our economic wealth, but our intellectual wealth
0: as well. Across the country, vice chancellors like Attila Brungs are trying to steer their institutions through a crisis that continues to unfold. They're doing so in different ways, with different priorities. But all of them are making decisions in the present whilst attempting to peer into a foggy and uncertain future. There are a lot of factors contributing to that uncertainty. Will international students return? How much debt can be sustained? What will happen to research funding? But one thing that would make it easier to act in the present is a clear plan for what universities should do in the future. What are universities in Australia for? The answer to that question will shape the kind of system that we get. And that's why it matters that we all raise our voices about the kind of higher education our society needs. As university workers, as students, as communities, as members of institutions that have perhaps forgotten how to act together, as people with kids who look to the future with increasing anxiety, and above all, as citizens. We need our universities and we need a way forward. We need a plan for the future that is fit for the challenges we face. Thanks to both of my guests on this, the second last episode of the New Social Contract podcast, where we've been talking about how the relationship between universities, the state and the public might be reshaped as we live through the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Sincere thanks to Professor Attila Brungs, Vice-Chancellor and President of the University of Technology Sydney, and the Honourable Member for Sydney, Tanya Plibersek, the Federal Shadow Minister for Education and Training. I'd also like to extend our thanks to the Parliamentary Broadcasting Office in Canberra who sent us a recording of the Division Bell. To continue the conversation we've been having here, head over to Twitter. You can find us there at tsncpod or send us an email at impactstudios at uts.edu.au next time on the new social contract podcast, it's our final episode. We'll take a look at what we've learned across the series and for regular listeners a familiar voice will be joining me Dr. Willem Croucher who you heard back in episode 2.
1: I'm an academic and researcher in the Melbourne Center for the Study of Higher Education.
0: I'm recording from a very warm study in a very wet Melbourne. will's going to help me spitball a few hypothetical scenarios for the future of higher education. Thanks for listening to The New Social Contract. Until next time, I'm Tamsin Peach. The interview with the Vice-Chancellor, Atella Bronx, took place on Tuesday, June 9. And the interview with Tanya Plibersek, Shadow Minister for Education and Training, was recorded on Tuesday, June 16, 2020. The New Social Contract is a podcast series made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.